Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show. Coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska. Where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. Welcome, everybody, to the Must Read Alaska Show. I'm your host, John Quick, coming to you live from somewhere in Alaska. I want to thank everybody that listens, watches, and reads Must Read Alaska. If you want to help keep the lights on here at Must Read Alaska, just go to mustreadalaska.com on the on the right-hand side. There is a little donate button every $5, $10, $100 helps keep the lights on here. And if you want to sponsor the show, uh, you can email me, John, J-O-H-N, at mustreadalaska.com. We just got ranked top 30 best conservative uh, pot, con- conservative podcast in the U.S. by Feedspot, which is pretty awesome. And today we have a very special guest. He's a proud dad, Rhodes Scholar, Navy SEAL, award-winning author, and apparently a, an award-winning boxer you just told me about, former governor and humanitarian Governor Eric Greitens. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska show. Hey, John, it is great to be on with you, and congratulations on the ranking. That's fantastic. Thank you for getting the message out to the people of Alaska and around the country, man. Really, really good work. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, one of those things where people are obsessed with Alaska. You turn on any kind of TV show, and there's 20 reality shows, and so we kind of <laughs> gleam from some of that, uh, and so it's not necessarily super savvy marketing it's just that people are obsessed with alaska so <laughs> sounds good man sounds so good. uh you are uh you know we were talking a little bit earlier you have a pretty awesome uh background you've done many different things and i'd love to just kind of hear some of your stories so um you know take me back to the late 90s when you were at oxford we're going to kind of go through some of your stories so folks if you're listening in I want to be, I want to keep you I want to tell you to stay with us for 20 minutes you're going to hear some pretty awesome stories from the governor but take me back to the late 90s you were at Oxford I believe and you chose a topic for your PhD that is probably one that I've never heard of to be honest and that's uh on humanitarian issues so t- tell me a little bit about why you chose that what was your topic and and kind of what spurred you on to write that particular dissertation Yeah you bet John so I wrote my dissertation on how international humanitarian organizations work with children in war zones. So um, I was very fortunate. I had never been, I I was a kid, grew up in Missouri. I had never been outside of the country before I went to college. Um, But I had some some amazing uh, mentors and friends in college. Uh, One story we can come back to if you'd like. The very first trip I ever took overseas was actually to China in 1993, and I ended up getting arrested there for teaching about human rights. So that was that was my that was my first experience <laughs> traveling overseas. We can put that one to the side for a moment. But I I went the next summer. You'll you'll remember, and your audience will remember that there was ethnic cleansing in Bosnia, and I went to live and work in refugee camps with kids who are called unaccompanied children. Sometimes they're orphan children because their parents were killed. Other times uh, they were just separated from their parents during the the refugee crisis. And so um, I was there working with them and uh, I really had an incredible experience there because you're working with men and women 
in one of the hardest circumstances you can possibly imagine. I mean, you think about what it's like not just to lose your home, but these were obviously all victims of violence, like they'd suffered tremendous hardship. And John, maybe what's most hard is not just what they'd been through, but in the refugee camp, they had no idea how long their situation was going to last. They had no idea when violence in Bosnia might come to an end. Yeah, we get uh, we get mad when I the internet really shows off for two minutes. The impact. Oh, I'm so sorry, as John. I, I I didn't hear that last piece. I just said, yeah, we get mad when the internet shuts off for two minutes. You know, these folks, right. they don't know where they're going to be for the next five years, five days, five months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's exactly right, and and it can be it can be really really hard um, on on them. So you know, long story short, I would, did some work there uh, with the kids, and I found it really rewarding work. The next summer. I ended up going to uh, Rwanda. This was shortly after the genocide in Rwanda. And I worked again with unaccompanied children in Rwanda and Zaire who'd been separated from their, from their parents during the genocide. And that kind of work I found to be really meaningful, incredibly challenging. As a kid from Missouri who'd never seen the world, it was a chance to kind of see and experience the world. I'll tell you what, it certainly made me appreciate everything that the United States of America had to offer. And so I continued to, to do this work. I, I worked in one of Mother Teresa's homes for the destitute and dying in Varanasi, India. Um, I worked with kids who'd lost lambs, limbs to landmines in Cambodia. And through all of that, I just saw the tremendous human capacity for resilience. Hmm. So this takes you to around 2002, where I think is just phenomenal because, you know, um, not a lot of people get to meet a president, right? But you were selected by President Bush to be a White House fellow. Tell me about that story. Did he call you up? How'd you hear the news? And uh, what 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 did that entail to be a White House fellow? Yeah, so so that happened. I was I I'd served as a as a Navy SEAL after my time in, in Oxford, and I'd I'd done a couple of deployments to Afghanistan, to Southeast Asia, to the Horn of Africa, and then uh, we got a, a call. It wasn't actually from President Bush personally, but it was from somebody at the White House Fellows Program um, who invited me to be a, a White House Fellow. So um, my last deployment in the Horn of Africa had been in early 2005. And then from the fall of 2005 to the fall of 2006, I served as a, as a White House Fellow. An incredible education into how the U.S. government both works and doesn't work. Um, over the course of, of that year. And then at the end of that year was when I went to, to Iraq. So it was in the fall of 2006, I went over uh, to serve in, in Iraq. And that's where I think you and I uh, might've been talking or, or our buddy Anthony was. Um, it was in Fallujah, Iraq, where I was serving when my, my team was hit by the suicide truck bomb there. Mm. T -t Tell me a story from that, because I think, you know, we're kind of like desensitized. I think, you know, we play these video games and we watch the news and it's like, oh, people die and people have guns. And we oftentimes forget like this is real war happening. Talk to me a little bit about what that was like for you and maybe how that changed your trajectory in life. Yeah, for sure, John. Yeah, I had a big impact on my on my trajectory. Well, I'll tell you just just one quick story was that um, March uh, 27th, uh, 2007, uh, my team had been out, we were doing a, a joint patrol 
in Fallujah, Iraq, along with it was the I was there. We had some U.S. Marines, Iraqi Army, and uh, we were looking for um, insurgents who were involved in creating suicide car bombs and suicide truck bombs. We came back. Uh, when it, it was a fairly eventful patrol, but what really was eventful was the next morning we came back, and then the next morning. It's probably five, six o'clock uh, in the morning. What happened was what's called a complex attack in the military, meaning that we had a bunch of mortars came in on the base, followed by small arms fire, and then multiple suicide truck bombs came in to attack the base. Uh, one of them exploded right outside of my building. Now, what they're doing at the time they were loading the suicide truck bombs with chlorine. So their intention was both to kill people with the truck bombs and then also to kill people with this poison chlorine cloud. Now, when we were hit, um, I and a bunch of the guys who I was with, we made it outside the other side of the barracks. And as soon as we got there, I fell down to my hands and knees. And because of the chlorine, I was down on my hands and knees, just kind of coughing, choking, spitting. And I looked down and I saw that I had blood on my uniform. Now, one of the things that you're trained to know as you go through the SEAL team training is that oftentimes you can be injured, but the surge of adrenaline from an injury means that you might not feel it. So they train you to actually check yourself. So I'm checking myself you're and checking, checking your, your yeah. body and all that. Checking my body to see. And then finally, John, I realized uh, it's not my blood. Uh, it was the blood of my friend, Joel Quadrier, who was just standing a couple of feet away from me. <clears throat> now, Joel was very fortunate. He, in, in a sense, that he had a severe head injury that day, and he ended up being casualty evacuated all the way back to the United States. But he, he lived and, and continued to proudly serve in the Marine Corps when he came home. That same day, though, I ran to the top of our the building that had been hit to provide cover as the Kazavat came in to take men and women back to the Fallujah Surgical Hospital. <clears throat> so I did that right to cover. Once all of the wounded had been sent back, Corman came to me and he said, Hey, sir, you need to go too. You need to go to the, to the hospital. And the first guy who had arrived, who was on the top of the roof with me that day uh, was a young Marine named Travis Mannion. Travis was awesome. Uh, great kid. I turned to Travis. I said, hey, man, you got it? And he said, yes, sir. I got your back. Go ahead. So I ran down the stairs, jumped in the Humvee. It drove us to the Fallujah Surgical Hospital. And, and that was the last thing I ever heard from Travis Mannion. Hmm. Uh, because a couple of days later, uh, Travis gave his life to his fellow Marines in Fallujah. And the Mannion family has done an incredible job. I encourage all of your listeners to go out and listen to the Travis, or, or as you were listening to the podcast, to go out and check out the Travis Mannion Foundation. But, you know, when you lose a family member like that, it's, it's not a video game. It's not a movie. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a short story that you're reading. It is a tremendous loss. And there's a great line in the funeral oration that actually Pericles um, talks about. And, and, and Lincoln picked up on Pericles' ideas in his address at Gettysburg, where Pericles says, you know, what lives on in the lives of men is not necessarily what's engraved in stones, but what they've woven into our lives. 
And what I always think, what I try to carry with me every day is that I am so lucky. I had, I had a number of friends who are in my SEAL team class who died. Obviously, Travis gave his life. I'm so lucky to be here. The greatest way that I can honor those men and women who gave their lives is to make sure that we live their values forward, that we keep their values alive in the country and, and in the world. And that, that is a, a constant inspiration. So one of the things you did is you literally put your money where your mouth is. I, I heard a story that you came back from combat one time and donated your combat pay to, to nonprofits that is it help veterans or something like that. Tell me that story. Yeah, that's exactly right. John. Look, I, I came back and I, I donated my combat pay and I used it to start an organization that called The Mission Continues. Because mm. <clears throat> what had happened, John, was I came back and I went to Bethesda to the Naval Hospital to visit with some recently returned wounded Marines. And at the time, they also had wounded soldiers and sailors and airmen there at the Bethesda Naval Hospital. And as I'm talking with them, and anybody who's had the experience of visiting with wounded and disabled veterans will know that you, you talk with these men and women and you ask them, what do you want to do when you recover? And they all say, I want to return to my unit. Now, the harsh reality was for a lot of these men and women was that they were not going to be able to return to their unit. I mean, one guy lost an arm, one guy lost, you know, uh, some of his eyesight, another had a bullet come through his neck. These guys were not going to be able to return to their unit right away, but they all wanted to continue to serve. And one of the unfortunate things that was happening in the country at the time was that we had these incredibly capable men and women who came home, but because they were injured, people started to treat them like charity cases. And you can imagine somebody's a United States Marine Sergeant in Afghanistan. You got the flag of the United States on your shoulder. You've got a team. You've got a mission. You've got a sense of purpose. And then all of a sudden, because you've been injured, you come home and people are like, hey, man, John, you want a free gift basket? Yeah. You want a free blanket? You want some free baseball tickets? Okay. So what I saw and what I had seen, and it was actually a lesson speaking about, you know, what I'd seen in the refugee camps, John, was that the people who often did the best were parents and grandparents who had very young kids. Why? Because they knew they had to wake up every day and be strong for someone else. Mm. And so what I saw was that with all of these men and women, what they needed was to find a way to continue to serve. So I donated my combat pay, some friends put in some money from their disability checks, and we created the Mission Continues to help returning wounded and disabled veterans come home and continue to serve. And we put these men and women to work at Habitat for Humanity, at Big Brothers, Big Sisters, at a Boys and Girls Club. And then what happened was they woke up every day and they knew that they still had people counting on them. Mm. And when you know that you've got somebody else who's counting on you, it is amazing what you can do. It is amazing what you can do. You know, courage, a lot of people sometimes forget. The word courage comes from the, the French uh, word cour, meaning heart. Courage is fundamentally rooted in love. And the big question in your life is always going to be, what's bigger, the fear or the love? And when someone loves you, it can give you tremendous strength. But when you love someone else, it gives you tremendous courage. So what, at some point, you probably realized, holy crap, there's a bunch of people listening to me, um, you know, somewhere around 2013, you were getting put on all these lists, Times Magazine, most influential people of the year list, Forbes, best leader lists. How do you deal with that? Because um, as I hear you talk about helping people, 
oftentimes those things can maybe get convoluted when, you know, celebrity status comes into play. Tell me about how that was like and that, you know, did it help propel you to where you are today? Well, you know, it, it was it was a great honor, but I think as, as a leader, one of the things I, I say now and would say then is that like all the credit goes to the team. Mm. Right. So oftentimes we focus on on one person who's at the top or, or, or who, who might have started any any venture to make anything significant and great happens often takes a tremendous team. And so it was a real honor for the team to be recognized in that way. Um, obviously, the greatest honor was the fact that we were able to save the lives of so many thousands of veterans who, who we worked with. I was literally back in Missouri, our very first Missouri veteran, great dude named Tim Smith, who was our first Missouri Mission Continues fellow. I just met with him again. Today, he owns his he owns a couple of businesses. One of them is called Patriot Commercial Cleaning, where he oh. hires other veterans and their families. He started a commercial cleaning business. This was a guy who had debilitating PTSD when he started working with us. And now he's a tremendous leader in the community and a, and a great dad. So I think what's important is that you always recognize, you know, we're all, all each of us here, we're blessed to be here. And it, it, you know, we may just get one round here. And whenever you can, as a leader, find ways to share the credit with others. Um, it's both true to what they've done. And I think essential for, for maintaining your own sanity and health. So who's somebody that you've looked up to over the years? There's Lots of people that look up to you. Uh, you've written, you you know, you've written several books, National New York Times bestseller books. But who's somebody that you've looked up to over the years, and why? Well, John, you know, I really always looked up to my dad mm. because my dad did an incredible job being a dad. Um, his dad died. His dad was a was a World War II veteran who was actually on the USS Enterprise when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And wow. as many of your listeners will know, the Enterprise was one of the carriers that was, carri was out to sea. Okay, so thankfully for all of us, for me, he was out to sea when that, when that happened. But he, um, he ended up dying when my dad was six years old. So my dad grew up every day wishing that he had had a father. And my grandfather's picture with his Navy medals was hung over my dad's dresser every day that I grew up. And I think in some way, like that was one of the things that led me into the, into the Navy, right? Now, of course, I had also like, I'd watch Top Gun and I'd watch Grandpa's <laughs> and shit and like, they're all of that nonsense as well, Right. But that was one of the things that probably, you know, in the back of my mind had really shaped my desire uh, to join. So, and and I, th I think that it was my grandfather's, you know, memory in some ways that he had passed on to my dad and on to me. That was one of the things that shaped my desire to serve in the military and, and in the Navy um, in, in particular. So... Uh, my dad was one of my great heroes today. I'm blessed to have two beautiful boys. They're seven and nine years old. Uh, we have a great time, uh, you know, all the time. And uh, if I can be as good a dad to my boys as my dad was to me, when at the end of my days, I'll know I've been successful. That's awesome. So one of your books that I think is pretty awesome is called Strength and Compassion. It's some, It's essays and are in the form of photography that you've done 
over the years um, as it relates to humanitarian aid work. You know, I think a lot of folks, I've known folks that have came back from serving tours in Afghanistan and they didn't write books on strength and compassion. What do you think is different that that you took that approach? Because I think that the it's a it's a pretty awesome approach. You decided to inject some more positive into the world after you've probably seen just crazy things while over, while over there. Talk to me a little bit about what that was like to to sit down and think, I'm going to do this book called Strength and Compassion. Yeah, you know, I think it's part of the duality that we, especially as men, as warriors, have to bring into the world. And that is that you need to have courage and compassion. You need to have strength and compassion. You know, what happens is that without compassion, courage has no direction. Courage drives in the direction of compassion. Like I said, courage fundamentally comes from love. When you love something, when you love your kids, you're going to be courageous for them. When you love your country, you're going to be courageous for it. Like it's that courage is really rooted in that love. At the same time, at the same time, um, without courage, compassion has no staying power. You know, Winston Churchill said courage is the most important virtue because it's the one that makes all the others possible. Um, if you don't have the courage, then your compassion isn't really going to um, be able to be effective in the world. And no matter how hard the world gets, and man, it will treat all of us unfairly. <laughs> it's going to treat all of us viciously. We're going to get pain that we don't ask for. We're going to get suffering that we don't ask for. But if you have resilience and you have courage and compassion, then on the other side of that pain, there can be wisdom. On the other side of that suffering, there can be strength. People have found that confronting fear leads to courage. And even things that are tragic can sometimes lead to joy. It's a very hard thing to do, but it's absolutely possible in every human life. Life ain't easy, but it's a sure a lot of fun. <laughs> you, you, and, and, and you know what? And this is the key, man. This is the key. And it's why I, you know, I really admire what you do here on this podcast, John, is that you know, you bring in great people, you talk about serious issues, and and Lord knows we have a host of incredibly serious, challenging issues right now in the country. And one of the things that I learned in SEAL team training, everybody knows how brutal it is, but we called it, John, the best time you never want to have again. <laughs> you learned how to have fun even amidst all of the hardship. And we have to find ways to keep our sense of humor. We have to find ways to keep our compassion. We have to find ways to keep our spirits up and keep our optimism alive if we're going to win. Yep. So 30 minutes has went by in a flash, Governor. One last question to you is yes, this. What advice would you give folks that are going to listen to this and maybe they've been discouraged because they turn on the mainstream media news, which you know, I don't, I don't ever do anymore, or they read the news uh, headlines, or they're on Instagram all day long, and or TikTok, and they're just seeing like, negative, 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 what kind of advice would you get to somebody that, you know, needs to uh, turn a, a different trajectory in their life? Yeah, great question. So first, I'd say, uh, stop consuming the trash. Stop consuming the poison, all of that stuff, all of the mainstream media lies, all of the like social media nonsense. 
It is designed to make you depressed. It is designed to make you feel isolated. It is designed to make you feel powerless. So let it go. If you want to read, you know, instead of that, invest in yourself. Mm. At the end of this, one of the, the keys to power, and this was an idea at the very foundation of the American Republic, was that the Republic would stand based on the strength of the individual citizen. And then how those citizens were able to come together. So you owe it to yourself, but we also need you to be strong. So instead of listening to their junk, right, read a good book. Instead of listening to their nonsense, work out and get strong. Instead of absorbing, right, their defeatism, go out and start your own business, start your own project. If we have men who are strong, who are capable, who are able, who believe in themselves, that's both good for you and it's good for everybody around you. Amen to that. Well, where can folks find your um, information? I'm sure you, you know, you're on Amazon, obviously, but um, people are going to want to come check you out that are maybe listening to the podcast. Tell me where they can find you and, and all that kind of stuff. For sure. The best place to go, John, is our website. It's www.ericgreitens, which is spelled E-R-I-C-G-R-E-I-T-E-N-S.com, ericgreitens.com. And all of our social media is at Eric Greitens. And you can also find us there. But the website's certainly the best place. Perfect. Well, we'll put that in the, we'll put that link in the podcast description. Awesome. Governor, thank you so much for joining us. We wish you nothing but success here at Mustard Alaska. It'll be exciting to see um, the next things you do. You've had a phenomenal career so far. I'm sure it's not over yet. Um, so for folks that listen, watch, and read Must Read Alaska, I want to thank you. If you want to help keep the lights on here at mustreadalaska.com, just go to mustreadalaska.com. On the right-hand side, there's a little donate button. Every $5, $10, $100 helps keep the lights on here at Must Read Alaska. If you want to sponsor the podcast, you can email me, John J-O-H-N, at mustreadalaska.com. And uh, Governor, again, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome back anytime and wishing you nothing but success here from Must Read Alaska. God bless you, John. Thank you, sir. Thank you.